0: Good morning. Good to see you all. Fall in the air this morning. <laughs> the Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. Psalm 98 2. Today is our communion service. How long has it been? About, about five or six months. worship service uh, as is our tradition we'll take a break and then regather when you hear the music dr ed's address offering in the box please andrea's number and again the days of praise and acts and facts are here so make use of those i heard a story this morning and we are making use of those so that's great I heard a story this morning that we're making use of the uh, okay. Acts and Facts. That's that's great news. All right. What else? Anything? Asking for a special prayer for Jenny Ziegler. Special prayer for Jenny Ziegler. Jenny Ziegler is... A longtime friend of the church uh, has been involved with the camp ministry, uh, her and her children for some years, so we want to uh, remember her special, special needs for her. Scripture for meditation this morning uh, reads Psalm 98, that's 935. Let's stand together and ask the Lord to bless us. Our God and our Father, we're again thankful that we can meet together uh, in your house. We uh, are thinking of our uh, distance, and we ask that, uh, Lord, you would intervene so that we uh, could again um, gather uh, as your people and um, not be impaired. We ask, Lord, that uh, you would be with our pastor today. Uh, We ask that you would strengthen him. Thank you for uh, the time that you provided and the clarity of mind uh, for him to prepare. And we ask, Lord, that we would receive uh, what you'd have us to learn today. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to, for this hour, set aside uh, the busyness of our lives, the turmoil of our country We would ask that uh, we would focus on the Savior. Uh, We ask, Lord, that uh, he would uh, take first place. We would ask uh, this morning for Jenny. Uh, We know she has uh, many difficulties. And I ask, Lord, that you would uh, meet with her, comfort her, heal her, and that... um, I ask, Lord, that uh, if there's something that uh, we as a church can do for her, that that would be made known. Thank you for her testimony uh, and the the life that she's exhibited uh, putting Christ first. Again, we ask for blessing as we meet uh, around your word. Prepare us for uh, that and then for the communion table. And we ask that you would uh, bless all that have come and all that are listening on the stream. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Take your uh, red hymnals this morning, the red trinity, woo, hymnals, excuse me, and turn to number 303 as we make a joyful noise this morning. 303 in the red. he didn't. Anyone have a favorite hymn this morning? I'm not looking at that hand because she, she, she was three weeks ago. So I try to keep track of my kids. So <laughs> anyone else? She will be my default though. No one? No one. Uh, going once. Oh, all right. Yeah, homework. All right. It's Sheila's remember. Homework for next week. Favorite him. Favorite him. All right, Sheila. I just opened the turn to this, but I like it. 442 in the brown. Take time to be four four two in the brown. Take time. Yes. Four, four. The tune we know he says is 441. Same hymn, just the tune that's familiar to us. Yes, please don't give me unfamiliar tunes. I am.
0: Our scripture reading this morning is Leviticus, chapter 10, and we'll be reading 1 through 11. That's 167 in the Pew Bible. Stand with us.
1: take your brown handle and turn to number 585 585 in the brown <clears throat>
2: There. It's too far back. Let's try that. What makes this difficult, it's spring-loaded, <laughs> so you got to push the spring down for me to get on. <laughs> yeah, I think this is going to be okay. Okay, great. Well, you can see we're sparsely populated. I think coronavirus and coronavirus scare is keeping people away. Um, I really think, brethren, we need to trust the Lord during these times. Uh, It is scary for particularly the elderly uh, because they don't want to get sick. I don't want to get sick. But at the same time, we have to trust the Lord and meet together and worship. So I would like you to think about calling people that are kind of uh, slack in their attendance and encourage them uh, to, to get out and to be supportive because what is the church? It's we're, ga- we're gathering together, and uh, that's what we should be doing. And uh, we can't let Mr. Virus <laughs> dictate whether or not we're going to be faithful in our worship. And the Lord will will protect us. And we're taking precautions. There's masks right out here that you can put on uh, when you come in and uh, keep them on while we're in the service and just do what we know how to do, wash hands, distancing, and all that wonderful stuff. Okay, our text today is Leviticus 10. Kind of a scary text when you think about it. It has to do with the rebellion of Nadab and Abihu and as we come to our study. Let's ask the Lord to encourage us. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it strikes home at the very need of our hearts. Sometimes it's scary to read your word because it brings before us a sight of God that is frightening. The sight of God that is holy, that is austere, that is separate from sinners, and that has a protocol in how we come and approach him that does not bend. We cannot treat in a profane way that which is holy. And that's what this lesson is all about today. So as we gather to worship, we're thankful for our building. We're thankful for those that could be here. Please encourage those that are not here to make an effort to get out And not to be so fearful about uh, this virus that's going around and so forth. We are looking for you to protect us as we take our own precautions. Bless our study today, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Our text is Leviticus 10. Last Sunday, we studied God's command that there is to be no imaging of him in our worship. That means no idols, no statues, no icons, no pictures, no script, sculptures, no paintings. I'm talking about worship now. Why? Because invariably men who fasten such replicas produce an image of God that's too human and devoid of his deity. That's the problem. We make God over into what we want him to be when we get into this imaging stuff. I asked the question, how does this apply to religious art? Do you ever think about that? The Toledo Art Museum has some fine depictions of the nativity, the miracle-working power of Jesus, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension. Dee and I visited the uh, museum years and years ago. We thoroughly enjoyed it, but what we appreciated most was the talent of the men who, with their paints and canvas, showed their depiction of what they thought was their envision of Jesus was, or the miracle that they were painting about, or some aspect of the history. Now, we weren't worshiping the pictures. They were huge, by the way. They went from floor to ceiling in our building here, well over 12, 15 feet tall, well over probably 10, 12 feet wide. So I would commend them to you if you ever like uh, to art and, and see things of that nature. But we weren't worshiping them in any way, shape, or form. We knew they were only the concepts of men concerning Jesus, whom they've never seen, right? No eye has seen. So... We just left it go with that. You can you can do that. You can say, well, that's. I, I've seen black Jesus. Have I, how many of you have seen black Jesus? The black community paints him black. So that's not right. He was Jewish. He wasn't black. Well, I get what they're what they're saying. They're saying he's a Jesus for us. He's our Jesus. And. Um, I can see some of that. The imaging of God, which all of us tend to be guilty, is what God told Ezekiel when he wrote to Israel. He said, you have idols in the heart. That is, things, people, concepts, which they worshipped above God, devoted their time and their energy and their money to obtain or to honor idols of the heart that really strikes home because we don't have to have a sculpture or a painting in our house that we're praying to like some religions do we could have an idol view of god or of jesus in our heart i can think of one of them that evangelicals are guilty of and that is god loves everybody And Jesus died for everybody. Well, that's an idol of the heart. Because if they're thinking every kind of person, that's true. But if they're saying that Jesus died for every last person on the earth. Then that's a fallacy. Because every last person on the earth isn't going to be saved. And the salvation is of God's grace. Not of our faith. But of his grace. So the problem with idols is that they are inventions of men. And number two, they're impotent. They are unable to help and they're unable to hurt. Think about that. And number three, and the most important thing that we looked at was idols of the heart are demonic. Demonic. The devil is robbing God of his rightful worship by substituting religious icons, religious images... For God or for Jesus. And you can think of some religions that do that. And you won't have to go very far to think about them. They're in our own country. So we need to be careful of imaging God in that way. Today I'm asking the question, may we add to worship what we want? it's a good question because in our society we see a lot of things going on in the name of god and i have to throw a question mark in my mind is that really of god does that really glorify god not in a judgmental way but i'm looking in the book the bible the book of books and i'm saying where do i find that in the book of books if it's not there then is it honorable so the question I'm asking is, may we add to worship what we want? Our text is Leviticus 9 and 10. Aaron consecrated himself and his sons and his and the people, Leviticus 9. This involved a sin offering, a burn offering, a fellowship offering, together with a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you, chapter 9, verse 3. And the purpose of these offerings is found in chapter 9, verse 7. Moses said to Aaron, Come to the altar and sacrifice your sin offerings and your burnt offerings and make, here it is, make atonement for yourself and the people. The offerings were to make atonement. And repeatedly throughout the text, we have reference to Aaron's sons presenting the blood of these offerings to Aaron their father, verse 9, verse 12, verse 18. It's a blood atonement. The animal is dying as a substitute for the sins of the person represented. The principle is explained by the writer of Hebrews. So we go to the New Testament to see what this is about. And the writer of Hebrews says, The law requires, I'm reading scripture, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness Hebrews 9, verse 22. That's what all these animal businesses were. That's what it's all about. A life for a life. And such atoning sacrifices had to begin with Aaron and his sons, because guess what? They were sinners just like the rest of the congregation of Israel. They weren't any different. Let me read it for you. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, he's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and have gone astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor unto himself He must be called by God just as Aaron was. Hebrews 5, the first four verses. I love this text because it says to me as a minister, it says to our elders in our church, our deacons in the church, you're not above the people. You're a sinner just like all the rest. You need the saving work of Jesus Christ just like all the rest. And in the Old Testament, the sacrifices Now, this is precisely the procedure employed in Leviticus 9 on day 1 of the very first atoning sacrifices. Verse 22 says, Then Aaron lifted his hands towards the people, and he blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, the fellowship offering, he stepped down. So, all of those offerings. Aaron then, along with Moses, I'm reading the context here, entered the tent of meaning, that is the worship center, and we read, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions of the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Not in fear. I love this. They shouted for joy. They understood the significance of the offering, that their sins were being atoned for. What a sight that must have been. I mean, by this time, we know that the population of Israel was well over a million people. So if you can you imagine a big field, acres of field, and a million people falling face down in worship of God? Time of great joy. The Shekinah glory was the best indicator that God was with them and was well pleased with their worship. Years later, when Solomon's temple was completed and the tabernacle was being laid to rest, you remember the tabernacle is a tent. We again read, When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord. Filled the temple, the priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. Second Chronicles seven verse one and two. So we finally get; a, they finally get a permanent structure, Solomon's temple. Same procedure; it had to be sanctified by the presence of God in His glory. What I'm saying here is that God is pleased, and He's eager to reveal Himself whenever we worship Him in spirit. And in truth, John 4, verse 23. We need to consider that if the blood of sacrifice animals can obtain entrance into God's favor and promote the display of his glory, what must it be like to understand what the writer of Hebrews relates about Jesus' atoning sacrifice, his sacrifice of himself? Let me read it for you. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, unlike the other priests. He does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as priests men who are weak and that's because they're sinners, right? But the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has made perfect forever, Hebrews 7 verse 26 and 20. What a difference between Christ the priest and Aaron the priest. And it's obvious that Jesus is the superior priest with a superior sacrifice. Being without personal sin, his atoning sacrifice need be only for the sin of the people. And yet, their sin, may I say our sin, is so great, so extensive, that nothing will appease God except Jesus himself, the Lamb of God. Only he can present the perfect and final sacrifice to wash away our sins. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest. Wow, love that. We do have such a high priest who sat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary. The true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one, namely Jesus, also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. For there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned When he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But, here it is, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. And it's founded on better promises. Hallelujah. Hebrews 8, verse 1 through 6. We got a better covenant, a better Savior, a better promise, better everything. Think about it. In Christ. In Christ. The law can't touch it. The animal sacrifices cannot parallel it. In the case of Aaron and his service, On the first consecration of himself, his sons, and the people, we are told, This is what the Lord has commanded you to do, so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Leviticus 9, verse 4. Or again, verse 7. Sacrifices and offerings that is for the people, and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. Commanded, commanded. you hear that? Everything occurring on that day of worship in the wilderness was done strictly by the book that is God's book. And the Lord demonstrated his acceptance by appearing in all of his glory. When we worship God in God's way, his glory is upon us. His blessing, his approval is upon us. We need to understand that. In Exodus 23, Moses writes, Worship the Lord your God. And his blessing will be on your food and your water. I will take away the sicknesses from among you. None will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all of your enemies turn their backs and run. Exodus 23, verse 25 and following. You notice all of those wonderful things. Good health, no miscarrying of your children, no barrenness among your families. No wonder the psalmist says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song, for the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship, let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Psalm 95, first six verses of that song. You say, where are you coming with all of this, Pastor? I'm coming to this, that Nadab and Abihu's great sin was their presumption in coming to God. Presumptuous worship. Aaron had four sons. Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. You can read about them in Exodus 6, verse 23, also verse 6. 6 of Exodus 6. All of them were in the priesthood. All of them were responsible to lead the people in the worship of God. If you're going to be a leader, you have to walk out in the open for all to see, for all to follow what you do. We lead by example, as well as by principle, not this stupid thing that we're hearing today. Well, we lead from behind. That's just gobbledygook. As noted, all the sacrifices of Aaron and his sons, chapter 9, were by the book. As God commanded, step by step. But, but coming to chapter 10, we read that Nadab and Abihu took it upon themselves to offer unauthorized fire. And he says, unauthorized fire before the Lord contrary to his command. Two words there that should just shock us. Unauthorized and contrary. Why would two priests do that? Didn't they know the rules? Didn't they know how to approach God? I'm sure they did. Where then were they to get the life fire for for, for their censors? You remember the They carried censers when they entered the holy place. Let me read it for you. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. And he's to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He's to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord. And two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain He's to put the incense on the fire before the Lord. And the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the testimony so that he will not die. Leviticus 16, verse 11 and following. It's talking about going into the most holy place. You know about that. And offering incense on the altar of incense. And this is the procedure. You remember the account of how God judged Korah, Dathan, and Abiram for their rebellion. The earth opened and swallowed them. The people protested against Moses and Aaron the very next day, it says in Scripture, and God sent a death plague upon them for protesting that He took the life of these rebels. And we read, Then Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put incense on it, along with fire from the altar, and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord, the plague has already started. So Aaron did, as Moses said, and he ran. He he ran into the midst of the assembly, and the plague had already started among the people. But Aaron offered the incense and he made atonement for them. And he stood between the living and the dead. And the plague stopped. But 14,700 people died from the plague. In addition to those who had died because of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance to the tent of meeting. For the plague had stopped. Number 16 verse 46 and following. The fire was to originate from the same altar where atonement sacrifices were made for the sins of the people. So it was consecrated fire. It was sanctified fire. We're not told the source of the fire used by Nadab and Abihu, only that it was unauthorized fire. Verse 1. It's the Hebrew word zur, z. O-O-R, meaning loathsome, strange in the sense of alien, used of a stranger, used of a prostitute, of all things. None of these adjectives are appropriate for a fire coal that's going to be used in the worship of God, but that's what they did. And what we learn in all of this is that Aaron, and by extension his sons, knew what God required in any burning of incense before him. They knew. No wonder then that God was highly offended at the presumption of these priests who certainly knew better, and yet they thought the worship of God was of so little consequence that they could approach him in a loathsome display of arrogance without suffering any dire consequences. They presume to worship God in their way. Following the desires of their own hearts. Sound familiar? It's like many in our day. People think worship is about them. How they feel. What makes them happy. What pleases them. It's almost as though they think God has not prescribed a particular protocol in approaching him. Just come. They think all that's necessary is that a person be sincere when he comes. You know, just be true to yourself and come. I do not doubt in the least... The Nadab and Abihu were sincere. They believed that as priests, not only was it their duty to lead the people in worship, but they entered into that role with confidence, maybe too much self-confidence, that their actions would be approved. But they were wrong. They were dead wrong. And they paid for their presumption with their lives. We read, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord, verse 2. And we need not speculate as to why. The next verse says, verse 3. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of. When he said, among those who approached me, I will show myself holy, in the sight of all the people. I will be honored. And Aaron, we read, remained silent. Good move, Aaron. Good move. Leviticus ten, verse three. Wow two things God wants in our worship. We approach Him in holiness and we approach Him in an honorable way. Think about it. From this we know that the burning of incense by Aaron's sons using unauthorized fire was indeed contrary to God's command. Verse 1. So no matter how sincere a worshiper may be, he or she cannot add to God's word and believe that sincerity of purpose placates any and all infractions of God's ordinances. These priests thought they were worshiping God when in fact they dishonored him before the people and profaned his holy name. But they were sincere. I've heard it said. I've heard people say, well, you know, as long as a person is sincere in their worship, that's all God's looking for. No, it isn't. We need to beware of presumption with God. Don't think that anything you offer Him will be acceptable simply because you are sincere. Anything does not go When it comes to worship, or that God will be happy just to have His people worship regardless of the procedures they employ. I mean, I watch TV too, and I see what goes on in some of these churches. God is holy, brethren, and we must keep that in the forefront of our worship. He's not pleased with the inventions of men. We're kind of saying, in some of the worship that's going on, oh, where would they come up with that? Hasn't God spoken and told us how to approach Him? You mean He did it in the Old Testament? Doesn't matter how we do it in the New Testament? We do know from looking in the New Testament that when the church gathered, they sang hymns, right? They read the scriptures. They had times of prayer. They didn't invent these things. The reformers of the Reformation wrestled with the things I'm talking about. Because if you remember your history maybe you should recall this a bit the reformed position came out of a revitalization of understanding what the gospel was in light of the heresy of Roman Catholicism and Roman Catholicism had everything they had the idols and the statues and the icons and the indulgences that you paid for from and the priest would give you an indulgence so you could go sin some more All kinds of corrupt things going on. And out of that Reformation period, the Reformers developed what they called the regulative principle of worship in Christian theology. And yeah, it's a human statement, but listen to what it says. The regulative principle of worship in Christian theology teaches that the public worship of God should include those and only those elements that are instituted, commanded, or appointed by command or example in the Bible. In other words, it is the belief that God institutes in Scripture whatever He requires. For worship in the church, and everything else, should be avoided. End quote. That's a great regulative principle. Yeah, it's man written, but you can see where they're getting it. And they quote from Calvin, which in this case, I think is very helpful. Let me quote him. Moreover, the true the rule which distinguishes between pure and devalued worship is of universal application in order that we may not adopt any device which seems fit to ourselves. But look to the injunction of Him who alone is entitled to do the prescribing. I like that. Therefore, if we would have Him to approve our worship, this rule which He everywhere enforces with the utmost strictness must be carefully observed. For there is a twofold reason why the Lord in condemning and prohibiting all fictitious worship requires us to give obedience only to his own voice. Now he's going to give us the two things. First, it tends to greatly establish his authority that we do not follow our own pleasure but depend entirely on his sovereignty. That's the first reason he says that you only can look to God and look to the Bible because it establishes his authority and makes him the boss. And secondly, such is our folly that when we are left to our liberty, all we are able to do is to go astray. Calvin had it right. And then, when once we have turned aside from the right path, there's no end to our wanderings until we are buried under a multitude of superstitions. And boy, Calvin knew, because he ministered and taught during the time of Roman Catholicism at its heyday, and all that superstition that's part of the Roman church. Wow. Therefore does the Lord in, our, in order to assert his full right of dominion. Strictly enjoin what he wishes us to do. And at once reject all human devices which are at variance with his command. Justly too does he in express terms. Define our limits that we may not by fa- fabricating perverse modes of worship provoke his anger against us they were fighting calvin and the reformers were fighting all of the liberal theology of roman catholicism and the worship of the saints and paying priests to pray for you and so you wouldn't have to go to purgatory or if you did then get you out of purgatory and all these rules and regulations Nadab and Abihu clearly violated this principle, though Calvin wasn't around yet. He wasn't even born yet. But in Moses' words, and Moses was around, Moses says they offered unauthorized fire. That is not prescribed by God. And then negatively, verse 1, contrary to God's commands. two, Two negatives. Unauthorized fire Contrary to God's commands. Some have said, well, do we expect God's word to spell out every last detail of worship? Well, God gives us two qualifiers. These two. It's in verse three. They're both in verse three. Among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. There's your first qualifier. Second one, also verse 3. In the sight of all the people, the corporate element, you see, people gathered for worship. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Honored. Okay. Well, so what constitutes holy worship? Let's take these two things. What constitutes holy worship? The word holy here means to be set apart, to consecrate, to designate as sacred, to hallow. It's the opposite of the common, the profane, the secular, and the carnal. It's holy. We have in our hymn an accurate hymn titled Holy, Holy, Holy was written by Reginald Heber in 1823. And the third verse of that hymn, I love this hymn, says, Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. Sinful man may not see it. Only thou art holy. And there is none beside. Perfect in power, in love, in purity. Holy, holy, holy. Hmm. Wonder where Reginald got that. <laughs> well, it cannot escape us that the scripture behind these lyrics is found in Isaiah chapter 6. Wherein the prophet envisioned God sitting on his throne surrounded by seraphim, the fiery ones, And one of those cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah 6, verse 3. It is in that same version, excuse me, same vision, that Isaiah sees himself as what? Holy? No. As undone. Let me read it for you. Woe to me, I cried, <laughs> I am ruined, literally Hebrews, cut off, I'm cut off. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I want you to observe that it is the utter contrast of Isaiah seeing himself as a man of sinful speech compared to the thrice holy God enthroned amidst the flaming seraphs, which causes him to conclude that he's ruined. What a great chasm. There's God in his throne, holy, holy, holy. And what am I? I'm a man of unclean lips. How'd I get in here? How do I get to go before this God? You get the idea here. There is no bebopping. There is no jazz jingle, sing-along as he worships God in all of his holiness. Rather, there's fear. And there's hesitation. And there's caution. And it is only as God sends an angel with a hot coal, metaphorically speaking, from the altar to touch Isaiah's tongue that Isaiah may know See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sins are atoned for. Isaiah 6 verse 7. What makes these items? Hot coals, censers, incense, altars, tongs. What makes them holy? Aren't they just uh, instruments of worship made by the hands of men? To be employed in the worship of God? What's the difference, if any, between your charcoal burner and your steel shovel that you use to throw the hot coals away when they're done? What's the difference between that and what we're reading about here in the scripture concerning the altar? Weren't all these utensils employed by Nadab and Abihu, censers, coal, incense. Weren't they manufactured by Israeli craftsmen themselves? Well, they were, you would agree, I'm sure. Exodus 37, 37 says, They made the altar of incense out of a chaos wood. It was square and built like a cubic long, a cubic wide, two cubics high, its horns on one piece with it. They overlaid the top of all the sides and the horns of the altar with pure gold and made gold moldings around it. They made two gold rings below the molding, two on one side, two on the other, to hold the poles used to carry it. They made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. They also made the sacred and anointing oil with the pure fragrant incense, the work of, an, of a perfumer. All of that, Exodus 37, verse 20 following. The text says, our text says, they built the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood three cubits high. It was square, five cubits long, five cubits wide. They made a horn at each of the corner, four corners so that the horns and the altar were of one piece and they overlaid the altar with bronze. They made all its utensils of bronze, its pots, its shovels, its sprinkling bowls, meat forks and fire pans. They made a grating for the altar, a bronze network, to be under its ledge. Halfway up the altar. Exodus 38. And then in chapter 40. After all the work. Was completed. We read. Then the Lord said to Moses. Set up the tabernacle. The tent of meeting. On the first day of the first month. Place the ark of testimony in it. And shield the ark with the curtain. Bring in the table. Set up what belongs on it. Bring in the lampstand. Set up those lamps. Place the gold altar of incense in front of the Ark of the Testimony. And put up the curtain in the entrance to the tabernacle. Place all the burnt offerings in front of the entrance to the tabernacle. The tent of meeting. Place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar. Put water in the basin. Set up the courtyard around it. Put the curtain up around the entrance of the courtyard. Take the anointing oil. Anoint the tabernacle, everything in it, consecrate it and all of its furnishings, and it will be holy. Then anoint the altar of burnt offerings and all of its utensils. Consecrate the altar and it will be most holy. Anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate them. Bring Aaron and his sons into the entrance to the tent of meeting. Wash them with water. Then dress Aaron in the sacred garments. Anoint him. And consecrate him so that he may serve as my priest. Bring his sons in. Dress them in their tunings. Anoint them just as they anointed their father. So that they may serve me as priests. All of that Exodus 40. Do You get a picture here. Then something stupendous and revolutionary occurred. After all of this anointing. Washing, anointing and so forth. After all of that. We read, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Exodus 40. Here's my question. What made the tabernacle and all of its utensils, all of its furniture, what made those things holy and thereafter off limits to all except the priests acting in their official capacity? Was it not the consecration? Of everything by the anointing oil confirmed and approved by God's glory that filled that tabernacle. So, what I'm saying is, from this point on, all those items were deemed holy because they had been consecrated to the Lord. No longer were these items to be viewed as the ordinary wares of silversmiths and carpenters. No, there was nothing ordinary about them at all from that point on. God's presence, His blessing made them holy. And brethren, that's the first qualifier in worship that we treat God as the Holy One that He is. We don't treat Him in a profane, flippant, careless, casual, carnal way. You know what I'm talking about. You've seen some of the shenanigans on TV as well. That's the first thing that God requires. You're going to treat me as holy when you come before me. And number two is also in verse three. In the sight of all the people, I will be, here's the second one, I will be honored. This is Hebrew word, the basic meaning of this word, honored, means to weigh down or make heavy, to consider to be weighty, worthy of honor, respect, and all that goes with it. It's the kind of reaction given to dignitaries, to people of distinction, the weighty of society, the movers, the shakers, who comprise what men call princes and kings, right? What we have in our present society is much disrespect, especially among the young and the naive. The push for equality among men has resulted in people placing God on their own plane. That's that imaging of God we talked about last week, in which God is viewed as no more worthy of honor than the most base character in society. That's because they don't know God. But that doesn't make it right. This can happen even in the religious community. Jesus was accused by the Pharisees of performing miracles by the power of the devil, of all things. I am not possessed by a demon, Jesus said. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it. And he is the judge. And they retorted, well, who do you think you are? And Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. And if I said I didn't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. John 8, verse 49 and following. Paul warns us, you who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles, the people of the world, because of you. Romans 2, verse 23 and 24. what we profess brethren we had better live because the sin of Aaron's sons was a breach of God's requirements to treat the things of God holy in the sight of all the people public worship secondly to honor him to honor God verse 3 Daniel's indictment of Belshazzar Nebuchadnezzar's son hits a little too close to home for comfort Here's what Daniel said. You have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you. And you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank from them. You praise the God of silver and the God of gold and the God of bronze and the God of iron and the God of wood and stone. Which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds his hand. In his hands, your life and your ways. Daniel 5, verse 23. You see how people can get so warped. Profaning God, dishonoring God. These were the two terrible sins of Nadab and Abihu. And their priestly office couldn't save them. Your position is no better as a believer if we do the same kind of wickedness. God has always said and does say to us, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy. Because I am holy. 1 Peter 1, verse 15 and 16. And that idea of holiness, again, from the the word, it means separate. Distinct from the world. Not running with the world. Not giving into the lusts of your heart. But trying to maintain a separate life. By the power <clears throat> of the Holy Spirit. Because God is holy. And he wants his people to be holy. Well, let's pray. Thank you Lord for your word. Thank you and praise you. For being the God that you are. And you're not. You're not the sinful, rebelled wicked, immoral gods of the nations and the pagans. But you are, in fact, holy, separate from sinners, perfect in righteousness. And you've called us to be that. We are holy positionally. We're just as holy as we're ever going to be. Because of the blood of Christ. But in practice. We mess up a lot. That's where our holiness is growing. We hope. Perfecting as it were. It's called sanctification. Becoming more like Christ. In our behavior. In our thinking. In our doing. I pray that you will help us to do that. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that indwells our hearts and our lives and grants us that empowerment to flee from the the sins of the flesh, sins of the mind, sins of the heart. As we come now, Lord, the close of our service and we think of the communion service to follow. Please be with us as we remember Jesus and his atoning work. Amen. Our closing hymn is 556 five, in the hymnal. Just take 10 minutes and we'll regather for the Lord's table.
1: Shall we stand as we sing? Five, five, six in the brown.
2: a 10-minute break and then gather here for our communion service.